Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. Buenos dias, world. I'm Marco Wendt. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization which oversees the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. Marco, 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 it's today, it's today, it's World Rhino Day. Oh, I know, man. I'm totally stoked. We get to talk all about that chubby unicorn we all <laughs> know and love, the increíble rhinoceros. And for those who may be listening to this after its release date of September 22nd, don't worry. If you missed World Rhino Day this year, you can catch it every year on September 22nd. And keep listening because you are not going to want to miss out on all things rhino in this episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love it when the timing works out like this. It's like the stars align <laughs> just for us to have an episode coming up right on World Rhino Day. Like many of the other international, global, or world days dedicated to a specific species or group of animals, World Rhino Day is a great day to share all things rhino, to raise awareness, and get others, like all the kids listening right now, involved in conservation. Exactly. And there is so much to cover when it comes to rhinos. For example, many people may not know there are five different species of rhino. The Javan rhino, the Sumatran rhino, the greater one-horned rhino, the eastern black rhino, and the white rhino. And worth noting, there are two subspecies of the white rhino, the southern white rhino and northern white rhino, which we did episodes on last season if anyone wants to go back and listen to those. Oh, those are really good. I love that. And I love this fact, by the way, friend. Even though most people think of rhinos as hairless, grayish colored, tough-skinned animals that just like ramming things with their horns, they are <laughs> actually like many other animals, you know? Most rhinos are looking to find food, raise their young if they have them, and pretty much live a very peaceful life and be left alone to do their own thing. And I'm going to charge right in with another <laughs> fact... Did you catch that? I got it. I got All it. All right, good. <laughs> you mentioned that people tend to think of them as hairless and tough-skinned. Yeah. Well... All rhinos have hair, but some species, not very much, and might be just located in certain parts of the body, like cute little ear tufts mm -hmm. or something. But get this. The Sumatran rhino tends to have a full body of reddish-brown hair. And as for the tough skin part, yes, it can look like they have thick, tough, armor-plating-type skin like the greater one-horned rhino has. But... Their skin is more sensitive than you might expect. That's one of the reasons you may see them wallowing in mud. It helps to keep parasites off and protect the skin from the sun. Oh, man, the greater one horned rhinos are my favorite. But, okay, hold on, Rick. I know we could <laughs> probably spend a full episode sharing a ton of rhino facts. Uh, eh? Yeah, eh? Yeah, yeah. But with it being World Rhino Day, shouldn't we bring one of our rhino experts to fill us in on all things rhino? Well, yes, of course. But seeing as you did say there's a ton... Can I just share one more fun fact? Ah, totally. Okay, cool. Okay. You know, actually, before I share the fact, that little noise you made before, <laughs> was that on purpose because the one-horned rhino? Okay, for those who are listening and don't know this, that E sound, that awkward, excited sound yep, that escaped yep. Marco's mouth, <laughs> that is also the sound that one-horned rhinos make. He did a very good job. Thank very you, good. sir. Thank you. You're welcome. No, And so back to my fun fact. Okay, this one is really a lot of fun. White rhinos are so big. That pound for pound, the head, this is just the head okay. of a white rhino can weigh as much as three 
empty household refrigerators. Oh, that's a whole <laughs> lot of rhino, buddy. But I love that fact, too. That's why they have that large hump of muscle on their shoulders to help hold that massive head in place. Yes, it's true. And for anyone out there who loves the numbers, on average, an empty household refrigerator weighs about 300 pounds. I know this because I Googled it. I didn't actually go weigh one. And a white rhino is sporting a head that weighs anywhere from 800 to 1,000 pounds. So, doing the math, three household refrigerators comes to around 900 pounds, which is the average for their head size. Wow. And as awesome as these rhino facts are, you're right, Marco. We do have one of our many rhino experts from the San Diego Zoo Safari Park waiting to share everything rhinos with us and our listeners. Oh, man, I wasn't sure if you were going to be able to stop with all your fun rhino facts. I was worried we are going to have to unplug your mic for a second, buddy. Okay, I have some self-control, Marco. <laughs> okay, plus I don't want to keep our guest waiting. He's a pretty busy person, and honestly, we're lucky to catch him between his travels. I am Gavin Livingston. I am the curator of mammals at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Gavin, I'm sure you can tell Marco and I are super excited to have you on the podcast today, not only because the day this episode comes out is actually World Rhino Day, but because as the curator of mammals for the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, you really have your finger on the pulse of what the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is doing for rhinos and rhino conservation. And as much as we want to cover things like what has conservation in the past looked like and where do we see rhino conservation going in the future, let's start with where we are right now. Why is rhino conservation relevant and important today? I think rhino conservation is important today because they're such a keystone species in the habitats that they live that protecting rhinos and figuring out how do we keep them safe and thriving in you know this modern world helps us then use that as a multiplier effect to help all the other species that are maybe a little bit less iconic. If you can focus on those iconic species and protect where they live, you can protect all kinds of species. Rhino conservation isn't really about rhinos. It's about an entire ecosystem or habitat that they live in. I have heard that before when conservationists talk about megafauna or big animals like rhinos and elephants, the term you use, keystone species, meaning that that particular species is vital for the ecosystem they live in. And in this case, it's rhinos. Can you give me an example of a role one of the rhino species may have in its ecosystem that no other species can do for that particular environment? Yeah, it kind of depends which ecosystem they're living in or what kind of habitat that they're occupying. I mean, they can serve a role in sort of a brush habitat like black rhinos of clearing brush to allow other species to navigate through. They help with fire prevention by browsing, you know, and eating on the brush and the trees. They help spread seeds through their dung from the food that they eat for the grazing species. So they do play an important niche in their individual habitats. Seed dispersers also? <laughs> rhinos are like featherless cassowaries. <laughs> but... I'm glad you mentioned helping with fire prevention. I know some people listening right now knew about seed dispersal and making trails or paths for smaller animals to use, but sometimes they're a lot less obvious, but just as important roles each species plays in their ecosystem. Like the rhinos helping with fire prevention simply by eating the plant materials that they need to eat every day. Yeah, you know, I was thinking the same thing, Marco, and that always reminds me that just because we do not always see the obvious role a species plays in the ecosystem, it doesn't mean there isn't one. Gavin, now that we have an idea of the role rhinos play in their ecosystem, can you share with us what are some of the different issues and pressures that rhinos face today? So unfortunately, 
Rhinos have a lot of pressure on them from multi-factors. It's habitat loss, it's spread of livestock and agriculture, but specifically for African rhino species, it's threats of poaching. The poaching crisis has gotten really severe in the past 15 to 20 years in particular, especially in Southern Africa, and it's just got to levels that were completely out of control for a while. Fortunately, there's been some positive trends in that, and especially during COVID, poaching numbers went down a lot. But then now we're seeing some increases, but that's starting to tick back up. And obviously the poaching is for rhino horn trade. And there's some cultures that believe that rhino horns have medicinal values and purposes. And that's put a high price on rhinos and it made it be very dangerous to be a rhino in their native habitat in many areas. But haven't studies and analysis been done to show that rhino horn is made up of the protein keratin, the same as, say, a horse hoof? That's exactly right. It's just like a fingernail or hair. It's nothing special or unique. It's just something that grows naturally. And it's really unfortunate that there's a belief that rhino horn has medicinal properties. I know a lot of work has been done to educate the general public about the fact that rhino horn is just made up of the same protein as hair and hooves and even fingernails. But it sounds like we still have a lot of work ahead of us. I know that the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, and specifically the Safari Park, has had a long history with rhinos and educating the public about them. In fact, the rhino has been one of our main symbols out here for a really, really long time. Ah, that's true. After all, it's the first thing you see when you drive up to the Safari Park. The sign out front is a huge rhino. And then you see them in large habitats and, well, if you're lucky, maybe you can see some babies out there. Oh, exactly. All awesome examples. But... I want to ask you, Gavin, what is it about the safari park and the rhino? I mean, why do you think those two are so connected? I think it's because of what type of park we are, right? We are a safari park. It's in the name. And when you think a safari, you think rhinos. And when you look as an organization that's promoting wildlife conservation and saving the natural world, you have to think about what are your strengths. And at the safari park, our strengths are large, natural, open habitats. And what does really well in that? Rhinos. And so when this organization was started and this park was built, you look at where that impact lies and we were able to have a huge impact with rhinos. And so since the park opened, we've been connecting our visitors with wildlife, specifically rhinos, and then also making a big difference to the rhino population in human care so that we can impact those species in the wild. And so it's really crucial that we do the work we do here as an organization because we're working to help not only impact the species in their native habitat, but create assurance populations in human care as well to ensure that these species don't go extinct. Ah, so well said, Gavin. Like conservation of the many other species we have discussed here on the podcast, there's no one perfect way to secure the future for wildlife. It's clearly multifaceted and takes several different areas of focus to make a difference for all of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. I wanted to ask you one more thing about our work in creating a safe population for rhinos here at the Safari Park, Gavin. Before I forget, though, one more thing. In the past 50 years of the Safari Park existing, what species of rhinoceros have lived here in that time? So we've had three species and two subspecies of rhinos here from the history of the parks. We've had eastern black rhinos, which are an African rhino species. We've had southern white and northern white rhinos, which are two subspecies of white rhino, and then greater one-horned rhinos as well. And we've been very fortunate to be very successful with all of those species of rhinos here at the Safari Park. So, I mean, of course, I got to ask. You said we have been fortunate to be very successful, right? But what are the numbers? Like across the board, how many rhinos have been born at the safari park? 
it's really a pretty incredible number when you think about it. So we've had over 200 rhino calves born here at the Safari Park in the history of the organization, which is one of the most successful rhino breeding programs anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. And we've had black, greater one-horn, and southern white rhinos born in those numbers. Gavin, you listed a species of rhinos that we have had success with when it comes to breeding and creating a safe population here at the Safari Park. I can't help but notice of the rhinos we have had here, there was one missing from the list of successful breeding, and that's the northern white rhino. When I started working for the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance over 20 years ago, we had at least three northern white rhinos. And over time, of course, they passed away from old age without creating offspring. What is our situation now and where are we with regards to the northern white rhino conservation work? So unfortunately, there's only two living northern white rhinos anywhere in the world, and they're living at Olpagetic Conservancy in Kenya. And they are two females, and they're both post-reproductive, so they don't have the ability to have any more calves. The one bright spot, though, is that through our frozen zoo here at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, we have 11 different genetic lines that are frozen, and we're working through our northern white rhino initiative to use conservation science and conservation genetics to help change the paradigm, potentially create more northern white rhinos through embryo transfer. All the science and everything about the work our teams are doing with the frozen zoo, oh, it always gives me goosebumps. And I wanted to ask, even though we have a limited number of northern white rhino cells in the frozen zoo, I heard that when we analyzed the genetics of each individual represented, that there was enough diversity to create a healthy population. Is that right? That is correct. We're very fortunate that we have really accomplished scientists and population biologists who are really good at taking and maintaining small populations and building them larger. And so through scientific management, we can take those 11 different genetic lines and create a healthy, thriving population. That is really amazing to think that we can leverage the advancements in science to prevent the extinction of the northern white rhino. Oh, I know what you mean, friend. It is wild. I have so many more questions about the science side of it, but I know that's not your specialty, so I will save you and our listeners from hearing me geek out about all the science and everything. <laughs> and with that said, we'll switch our focus a little to talk about the eastern black rhino. Gavin, you had mentioned earlier the different species and having black rhinos at one time at the safari park. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so we historically have housed black rhinos here at the safari park, and we've been fortunate enough to have 18 calves born here in our care. And we don't currently have any on habitat here at the safari park, but through our conservation science department, we're supporting conservation of black rhinos in Kenya. But wait a minute, friend. I know we've also transported an eastern black rhino back to Africa to help with the conservation as well. Can you share a little bit of that story? Yeah, and that's a really cool story. So we were fortunate enough to be able to take a black rhino named Eric, who was born in human care here at the Safari Park, and transfer him to Tanzania, where he was able to take genetics that weren't represented in that population, that were new to that area, and then put him on a conservancy there and spread those genes into the population to make it thriving and healthier than it was before. I have to admit, what I love about that story and, and everything you've shared so far, there's just no one answer to conservation. It takes a lot of creativity, a lot of thinking outside of the box, a lot of science, a lot of people coming together. I mean, just the idea that, hey, we're going to send a rhino back to Africa to help with the genetics there. We have different individuals in the frozen zoo to help with the future population that can no longer breed on its own. And with all of that and with everything we're doing, working together, it really seems it takes a lot of people doing a lot of creative work. 
That's completely true. I mean, conservation really takes an all-of-the-above approach because we're no longer in sort of this mindset where Western conservation groups go to range countries and tell countries how to manage their own animals. That's not effective, and that's not what we're trying to do. We're really looking to take tools from many different disciplines, including the hard sciences, but also social science, to look at you know how people interact with animals in their area and how they can live in harmony with the wildlife around them, and how do you even create a system where it's beneficial to live around wildlife. And so it's not just one answer. It's many different disciplines, as you said, coming together. And that's really what's going to change the paradigm for wildlife. Oh, I love that. The use of different disciplines, just like in the wild, right? The more diversity, the healthier the population. I love that word diversity. So it is true for our conservation approaches. Diversity wins every time. In fact, that makes me think of yet another aspect to the conservation puzzle. And that's all the things that we've learned about other species under our care. I mean, sometimes what we do and what we learn while caring for wildlife here at the zoo or the safari park becomes important information to then share with our friends that work with these species in their native habitats. What sort of work have we done with rhinos that has translated to supporting knowledge for those doing work in the field? We're really fortunate because the wildlife care specialists we have here at the safari park and at the zoo that care for our rhinos every day develop incredible relationships with those animals. And through those relationships, we're able to learn so much about the behavior and even natural history of these species that we didn't know before. So with these relationships they develop, they're able to see how do rhinos utilize different spaces? How do rhinos adapt to change in their environment? We can take part in nutritional studies as well to see how do different food items that are presented to rhinos impact their overall health health and well-being. When you have animals in human care that have strong relationships with their caregivers, you're able to multiply that and really impact those species in the wild. I mean, if you think about it, a rhino in Kenya who's out in the field, you're not going to be able to see everything it does. You're not going to be able to know how does that animal react to a novel object in the area. But that can be really important when you're thinking about reintroducing animals to an area that they weren't living because you need to know how would rhinos you're reintroducing impact fences that they see? How would they deal with seeing vehicles? So we're able to take that information we gain here and directly impact those conservation projects in the field. So it's not only about connecting visitors here at the safari park with rhinos and wanting them to help save them in the wild, but it's also about taking that knowledge and directly impacting species conservation in their native habitat. That's one thing I really love about doing these interviews and having this opportunity to talk to people to do the work you do and you're in charge of the teams doing all this work and you travel all over for this too, is that it really allows our audience to understand it yeah, you come here to the safari park and you're going to enjoy your day and you're going to see some really cool animals. By the way, we're a nonprofit, so anything you're doing here, it helps our work. But then to actually have the opportunity to peek behind the curtain, to go, this is all the layers of work going into conservation and how every little part is so important. I think it's so cool to hear that and really get a clear picture of that. So thank you. Oh, no doubt, Rick. I mean, it really is great to see these insider perspectives. And to take it a step further, Gavin, we talked about how the safari park has done so much, and it's a great space for breeding rhinos and all the incredible work for these species. But we're not doing it alone. Historically, zoos have worked together, whether it's sharing what we learned about a particular species or collaborating on best veterinary techniques or even playing matchmaker to help increase the population of endangered species. Can you share with our listeners just a little bit about our work with other accredited zoos and aquariums? I think that's something really important for us to touch on. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it isn't just a one zoo approach and it's 
a lot of science that goes into managing these wildlife populations. And so we're really fortunate to work with our partners at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in the Species Survival Plans. And basically what that is, is sort of a scientific-based breeding program for the rhino species and other species we work with. And every couple of years, all of the zoos who have rhinos get together and they decide what are the best moves and recommendations we can make to make the healthiest rhino population while also taking into account the individual animals, their behaviors and their likes and dislikes to make sure that we don't see them as just one population, but we also see them as individual animals too. Well, there it is again. We see the importance of the collaboration and everyone working together. And I appreciate the perspective that the species survival plans have, that it's not just about the overall population, but also seeing the individuals in the population and taking into account the whole picture for conservation. I am really excited to see where all this collaboration takes us moving forward. Uh, Me too, Rick. I mean, we still have so much to do. Gavin, in your opinion, what's the future of rhino conservation? I think the future of rhino conservation is really going to be focused around partnerships. It's conservation organizations, nonprofit groups, zoological facilities, and then range countries all working together to protect rhinos. It's not one type of organization can support rhinos anywhere in the world. It's not different groups coming in and telling countries how to manage their rhinos. It's really everybody working together and taking their strengths to put all of that together to create a change for rhinos. Because as we've seen, it's a really difficult thing to do, and we can't think that anyone has the one answer on how to say rhinos. It really is that all of the above approach that's going to be required to save these species. Oh, I have to ask because knowing there are a lot of different people and groups coming together for rhino conservation and knowing that rhinos are still facing serious challenges in the wild, are there any bright spots in all this? Are we headed in the right direction? Fortunately, there is a bright spot. It's not all bad news for rhinos. So the greater one-horned rhino is the species that's doing the best, statistically speaking, of rhinos in their native habitat. So the greater one-horned rhino was down to about 3,200 animals in the wild about 10 years ago. And now that population has increased to a little over 4,000, which has been statistically a huge increase for that species. And that's primarily linked to the partnerships and works done between the native range countries, Nepal, Bhutan, and India, and the conservation groups that work there as well, the International Rhino Foundation, Wildlife Conservation Society. There's been a lot of work done to support those species there, and it's really showing a huge impact for them. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And it really reinforces the need for partnerships and all of the collaborative work that we've been talking about. Exactly, Marco. It really is good news. Gavin, knowing that the multifaceted approach is needed and knowing that the partnerships and working with local communities is working, I have to ask, when you go visit with the communities participating in this conservation work, seeing the struggles and the successes, sharing what we know and learning from them as well, then coming back here and sharing all of this with our staff and working side by side with the wildlife care specialists, for you personally, what's that like being a part of that? I'm continually inspired every day by the work that our teams do here. It's really amazing to come to work every day and get to be a part of changing the world. And that's really what we're doing here at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Every one of us is playing a small part into this larger mission of creating a world where all life thrives. And it, particularly to rhinos, I've loved rhinos ever since I was a kid. And so now to get to work at an organization that changes the paradigm for rhinos like we're taking part in, it's really inspiring. And I feel lucky to do this every day. Ah, friend, I love that you mentioned you have loved rhinos since you were a kid. (laughs) I know we have a lot of young listeners that have a passion for wildlife and maybe even a love for a specific species. So I am sure they can relate. But I'm a little curious. If you could imagine yourself sitting down next to your younger self, little Gavin, and say, this is what you're going to be doing when you get older, 
what would that be like? Do you think your little head will just explode or what? It really would. I would be so excited. I remember I've loved rhino since an early age because a triceratops was my favorite dinosaur. And I thought that a rhino was the most like a triceratops. And so I thought, can I actually work with a real triceratops? Not quite, but rhinos are a pretty close (laughs) second. I don't think I would believe that I'm getting to do what I do every day now. It really is a dream come true. Oh, I love that. I really do. And I want to take it a step further. If there's a kid listening right now who wants to work with rhinos, be it, I don't know, in a curatorial position like yourself or as a wildlife care specialist or maybe someone who does work in another country, what would be the direction you would point them in? What would you want to say to them for their dreams and aspirations to work with rhinos? Well, first thing I would tell them is that no one's path looks the same. So don't think that just because you come from a certain background or you have a certain level of education that you can't get to work with wildlife. No one's path is identical. But I mean, if you're really interested in working with rhinos or any other wildlife species, I'd highly encourage you to learn about their natural history, learn about what the habitats where these animals are living so that you can know how best to care for them in a human environment. But then also work on your education, work on meeting your local zoos and Just do what you can to start to build that network because that's really helpful to get your foot in the door. That is all good advice for someone looking to get started working with wildlife. But I have one more question for you, Gavin. You've had a pretty amazing career thus far doing so much for wildlife conservation. But of all the things you've experienced, is there one that you would consider the most memorable with rhinos or any other species you may have worked with? That's a good question. That's a tough one. I get to do so many amazing things in my role here, but I think I'm going to have to use a non-rhino example. That's great. I think the experience that changed me the most was the first time I got to help with a wildlife reintroduction, and that was for Scimitar Hondorix in Chad. And I remember that day specifically being there, collaring Scimitar Hondorix that we released back into the wild. And it was particularly special for me because those were animals that were born into human care that were then sent to Chad and going back out into their native habitat where they belong. And getting to see that end of this cycle and everything come full circle and seeing how we can really as wildlife conservationists truly impact animals in the wild in that tangible form, that was something I'll never forget. It was life-changing for me. Ah, such a great story, Gavin. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit with us and share your knowledge and passion for rhino conservation. Yes, yeah, muchísimas gracias, amigo. This was awesome. Absolutely, it was a great opportunity to share the work that our teams do here with rhinos every day, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, that was such a great talk with Gavin. He shared so many great details about rhino conservation. I loved how his favorite dinosaur was a Triceratops and how he loves rhinos now. I mean, my favorite dinosaur was a pterodactyl, so <laughs> it makes perfect sense. I mean, some people might argue pterodactyls wasn't a dinosaur. Oh, that's true. I, that's so. Oh, I don't know, know the science behind it, though. You know but what? I, I was inspired as a child. That's the point. Right? That is the point. You were inspired by the fossils of other animals. Right? And it was a whole lot of fun. <laughs> well, I think you're right, though. Either way, Gavin was a perfect guest for World Rhino Day. And I know our listeners are all fans of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and animal lovers, but there's one more topic we need to cover, Marco. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I know where you're going with this, friend. And I agree. But I think maybe we need to talk a little bit more about how people can help with rhinos. Exactly. And I'd have to say, first and foremost, we need to keep raising awareness that rhino horn is just keratin a protein that makes up our hair, our fingernails, hooves, and horns of other animals. This may seem like a silly thing to have to say, but many people out there still believe rhino horn is unique and has special powers or medical benefits to humans. Because of this, rhinos are hunted illegally for their horns. 
Yeah, exactly. And by raising awareness and sharing these facts with others whenever possible, we can stop the demand for rhino horn and hopefully stop the poaching. And there are other ways people can help. It's by supporting organizations like the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance and our many allies working in Africa and Asia for rhinos. By supporting conservation organizations, we can secure supplies and help communities manage the land they share with wildlife. And if anyone is listening who wants to become an ally for wildlife and join us in our rhino conservation efforts, I definitely encourage you to go to our website, sdzwa.org, to find out more about rhino conservation and how you can support our work and the work of our partners. Couldn't have said better myself, buddy. Ah, thanks, Rand. Hey, Marco, before we wrap this up, can I drop one more fun rhino fact? Oh, yeah, man. Go for it. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know how the cheetah is the fastest land mammal, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, get this. The rhino should not be underestimated. Although they can't keep up with the cheetah, they can run about 35 miles an hour. And a black rhino has even been clocked closer to 40 miles an hour. Oh, no. Definitely not cheetah speeds, but that's a lot faster than I can run. (laughs) Right? It's pretty impressive. Okay. Speaking of running, we are running out of time here, but I want to make sure everyone subscribes and tunes into our next episode in which Marco and I explore some of the unique species in our own backyard right here in San Diego County. I'm Marco Lent. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton, and our sound designer and editor is Sierra Spreen. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.